Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Again, if you have no idea where Luke is, feel free to use the table of contents there. You have a pew Bible there in front of you or however you like to access it. Remember, we'll be in the gospel account. So you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you get to John, you've gone too far. And we're going to read this great parable, very familiar parable for us this morning. Uh, Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so we'd love for you to have that there in front of you this morning. And in the lead up to the Advent season that we're about to get into, we are, uh, and that, that Advent season, as you know, what I typically do is I just take kind of a well-known hymn or a, uh, maybe not a well-known hymn and then try to kind of build an Advent series around it. And this year we're going to base the Advent uh, series around this hymn called Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People. A great, great hymn. If you're unfamiliar with it, I would love to introduce it to you. Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People. But what we're going to do for the next three Sundays in the lead up to that is we're just going to do a three-week little mini-series. And you can see the, the logo on your bulletin. I'm talking about the grace-shaped life. The grace-shaped life. And we're going to base this short series around questions one and two of the Heidelberg Catechism. And these are actually on the front of your bulletin, and I'd love for you to take a look at them. We're going to reference those here in just a moment. You see there the grace-shaped life, and you see those three big buckets, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that I have uh, already mentioned before and is one of my favorite kind of opening catechism questions, you know, shorter catechism opens with, uh, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism starts with this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it says there, this is just a portion of the answer, but it says that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This answer is one of my favorites. What is your only comfort in life and death? And you can see we're going to talk more about that in our Advent series when we look at comfort, comfort ye my people. What does that look like? The second question that you have there includes... Uh, Another wonderful question. So what is your only comfort in life and death that I belong to Jesus Christ? The second question, which is right underneath it, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of that comfort? What do I need to know? And you can see the answer there. First, how great my sins and miseries are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. And the second, inqu- the second question includes three main topics that actually the Heidelberg Catechism from that point forward actually talks about those three buckets. And we see the first thing that we need to understand is our own guilt, how great my sins and miseries are. The second thing we need to know is the grace of God, how I am delivered from all my sins and miseries. And then finally, gratitude how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. And so these are going to be the three topics that we're going to cover in the lead up to the Advent series over the next three Sundays. We're going to look at guilt, grace, and gratitude. And the topic of gratitude and thankfulness will actually come on the Sunday right before Thanksgiving. So hopefully it'll tie in there. And so we think about this this morning in today's self-help kind of obsessed culture. It seems odd that we would start this short series with a discussion about something that seems so negative. 
Why would you start with how great my sins and miseries are? That just seems so yucky. It seems so negative. Why would the catechism say that this is the thing that I need to realize to actually enjoy comfort? It seems so odd. Why would you focus on something negative and actually find comfort in it? It it seems really weird when you think about it. But the Heidelberg Catechism says that this is the first thing we need to understand about ourselves before we're able to truly find comfort in Christ. And I wholeheartedly agree. Why? Because if you don't truly see your sin and the desperation of your true spiritual condition before a holy and righteous God, the gospel will never be good news to you. To put it another way, if you think that you're capable of doing it all yourself, then you really don't need a savior. What you just need is a life coach. We have to see our desperate need before a holy and righteous God, before the gospel's ever going to make sense. And if you are thinking, I can still do this on my own, and I know some of y'all are thinking, there goes Dave again, talking about our own inability. Yes, I am. Because if you don't get it, you miss the gospel. And we think, how in the world do I know that this is true? Why can I confidently say that to you? That you have to understand your need before the gospel's ever going to be good news to you. How do I know that? It's my own story. It's my own story. Years ago, when when we lived in Newport News, Virginia, during the summer when all of our college students were at home, that's the time when we fixed up our old house that was built in 1940. It was stuff breaking all the time. And one thing that we decided to do over the course of a summer is we had kind of this like dark corner over here that was really unused. And what we tried to do is turn that into a laundry room right off the kitchen and put a pantry in there. We didn't have a pantry. We had no place to like put stuff. And so tried to build that. Spent weeks on it. We reclaimed this old like scary boiler room that nobody wanted to go in. You know, we put cabinets in, countertops, all that. And after all of that work, we were putting the finishing touch on the room, you know, we're, we're doing the paint, we're putting up new lighting to finally see in this dark corner, you know, this kind of scary place. And I was feeling pretty good about the, about the results until I turned those LED track lights on for the first time. And suddenly I could see every imperfection in the wall. I could see every imperfection in the grout. I, had, I could see every little cut that wasn't just right. As soon as the lights got turned on, it was not a pretty picture. And in many ways, that home improvement story is a good metaphor for my own spiritual life. I spent a lot of time and effort carefully constructing what I thought was the life of a good Christian boy in the South. I went to church every time the door was open. I did my best to listen to my parents, obey the rules, keep my nose clean. I grew up thinking God helps those who help themselves. And boy, did I sure try and try and try and try. I looked down my nose in high school at others who didn't go to church, or my friends who smoked or hung out with the wrong crowd or went to parties. I looked down my nose at them thinking that I was better than them. I even carried that self-righteousness into college. I scoffed at frats and sororities. And I even, my freshman year, in my own self-righteousness, started a fake frat. It was called I Ate a Tata. <laughs> Self-righteous as I was. Thought I was better than them, while all along trying to establish myself as a good Christian boy on campus who who did good Christian stuff, and I wore myself out. I spent years thinking that God was lucky to have a guy like me on his team, until the lights got turned on. Until the lights got turned on, and I saw what a self-righteous, bitter, 
person that I was because I was only relying on myself. I wasn't seeking the glory of God. I was seeking the glory of me. And I looked down my nose at everybody else. I saw that I had been doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And I realized that my true heart motivation was not the glory of God. It was my own. You think, what caused the light bulb to come on by the power of the Holy Spirit? What was the thing that made me go, oh, I've missed it all? It was realizing how spiritually bankrupt I was when I finally understood the holiness of God in my own sin. I finally realized, oh, I'm the bad guy in the story. That's me. I'm not the good guy. I'm not the good Samaritan. I'm the guy in the ditch by the side of the road. That's me. See, the gospel had never made sense to me until finally I realized that I was the bad guy in the story. Then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, he's holy and I'm not and I'm in trouble. It was like the lights got flipped on and I looked at my life and I realized this is not a pretty picture because I see imperfection everywhere. It was a moment of, it was in that moment of, tutter, of like total utter humiliation before God that I was finally able to see my own inability and I was finally able to see my need for Christ and I was finally able to see that I'm not any better than anybody else and shame on me for spending my whole life thinking that. That I'm smarter than them or I'm more intellectual, you know, I'm more theologically astute than them. No, no. I realized my own self-righteousness and how bitter I had become and how angry it because I, it's, I lost it. I totally missed it. I did all the Christian-y stuff, but I did it for all the wrong reasons. I missed the gospel. Utterly missed it. It was only in that moment when I was finally able to see my own just utter inability and my spiritual bankruptcy that finally the gospel made sense. Finally, Jesus became precious to me. And the good news about all this, you're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Jesus encountered people just like me in his life when he walked this earth. Let's read about that right now. Luke chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 9. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Y'all, that was me. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, as we come to your word, help us to come to it with humble hearts. Lord, we pray that you would drive out a root of bitterness or self-sufficiency when we look at this and say, I don't need to hear this. Lord, remind us that we do. Lord, help us to see more of your love and your grace and mercy. May the gospel shine forth, soften our hearts to hear hard truths, O Lord, but yet be comforted with your grace. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the big question we're going to ask this morning is, how does the gospel set us free to be truly honest about our lives? How does the gospel set us free to be truly honest about our lives? 
we're going to see two things. Number one, the gospel sets us free to be honest about our biggest problem. The second thing is the gospel sets us free by reminding, of us, reminding us of our biggest hope. So the gospel sets us free by reminding, of us, reminding us of our biggest problem that we have. But then it also sets us free by reminding us of our biggest hope. So let's look at that. First. The gospel sets us free to be honest about our biggest problem. As we begin looking at what is known as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, we need to remember a few things. Number one, what's a parable? What a, what a weird little word. Parable comes from, there's a Greek little prefix called para, which means alongside is one of the translations. So a parable is a story that's kind of thrown alongside to illust help illustrate a larger truth. That's what a parable is. Number one, the second thing we need to remember is who the Pharisees were. These were Jewish religious leaders of the day. They were the teachers and kind of keepers of the law of God. And we also need to remember how tax collectors were seen back in Jesus' day, probably not much better than tax collectors in our own day and age. They were seen as traitors at the time because they were basically taking money and giving it to the enemy and these occupiers who were there. They also had the reputation of being notoriously dishonest that they would actually ask for a little extra, they would increase the tax a bit, and they would keep the extra for themselves and deliver the rest to the occupying force. So the tax collectors were not seen as great people. And look at verse 9. This parable begins with Luke describing the audience. So who, who's overseeing, who's overhearing this? He says, he, told, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What a withering description. What a withering description there. And Luke then records the parable Jesus told to illustrate this sharp contrast. Hopefully you picked up on that when we read it. Here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, we've heard the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector so often that it has become to us like a comfortable old slipper that other people wear. They wear it to their discomfort and we enjoy seeing them wear it. Actually, this parable paradoxically both fits our feet and pinches them. I thought that was a great little line. Look at verse 10. What you have is this Pharisee and the tax collector, they're up in the temple to pray, and the temple at the time was the center of Jewish life, and it sat on a hill. Everything revolved around the temple. You even have these psalms of ascent that you will see in the Psalter. When you go and you read the psalm, it says, this is a psalm of ascent. These were actually sung by pilgrims who were going to the temple, and as they ascended up the temple mount geographically, they would sing these psalms. And so you have this city, that's this temple that's on a hill, but as we'll see, this is about the only thing that these two guys have in common is the geography that where they're there. Their two prayers are a study in contrast about how they see themselves before God. And look at verse 11. Based on body posture, everything seems okay with the Pharisee. He's at the temple. It was common practice to stand while praying in the temple courts. But we get a glimpse into his heart when we're told that he stood by himself, probably to avoid being too close to those who might defile his holiness. Now, I'm off by myself. I don't want to be too close to the unclean people. Let me make sure I keep a safe distance. Let me pray so that people can see it. And did you notice in his short prayer that it contains the personal pronoun I five times? Look at verses 11 and 12. Let me find it. 
The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe, a tithe of all that I get. You pick up the personal pronoun that's there. Here's what Kistemacher said. He said, no petition is offered, for he trusts in himself and his own sufficiency. There's no need for confession, for he's kept the commandments. And references to his fellow man are listed in negative terms. Moreover, God should be pleased to have a law-abiding Pharisee address him in prayer. That was me. That was me. That was me, y'all. The Pharisees here, God should be pleased to have a law-abiding Pharisee address him in prayer. And no doubt he had walked into the temple and noticed that notorious tax collector outside the temple court and wondered why a scoundrel like that would ever dare to show his face at the temple. Who's this guy think he is? We're told in his self-glorifying prayer that he actually mentions two extra things that he has done. Number one, he says, I have fasted extra. The Mosaic law only mandated one day of fasting on Yom Kippur, but the Pharisees added fasting on Mondays and Thursdays to the requirements. And we'll see this in, Matthew, in, in Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount. There are these six times that Jesus comes and says, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And the you have heard it said is six times that the Pharisees had actually come and added to the law, or they had actually diminished it. It kind of went both ways. They diminished it to make themselves look better because they could say, look, we've kept this. And what Jesus comes and he does and he restores the law to its full potential and says, there's nobody who's kept this. And here, what the Pharisee is doing is saying, Lord, I know that you've asked me to do this, but I'm doing extra. He also says that he tithed extra. The produce that he had bought had already been tithed on by the grower. So the person who you know, brought the crops to market, they would have tithed some of it. And so what he's doing is he's going in like extra tithing. But instead of relying on the work of others to keep the law for him, he makes sure that he does it by himself by tithing on top of it again. And it's easy to shake your head at the Pharisee, isn't it? Until you see yourself in him. And the root, this is the root of the problem. Self-righteousness in a very religious rapper. It's my story. Might be your story. Many of you grew up living or still live like I did in high school and college. God helps those who help themselves. You put your obedience in. You get the blessing out. That's how the Christian life works. Many of you have worked your fingers to the bone trying to make others think well of you spiritually or prove to God that maybe this time you really are serious about it. This time's going to be the one that counts. But that old heart catches up with you. And we find ourselves going, ugh, I messed up again. I lived this way for a long time, relying upon my own obedience and ignoring my biggest problem, which was my sinful heart. And I said things like, well, at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. At least I'm not as bad as that person. We all do it. We may look down our noses at other people and we think, well, at least I don't vote like them or I don't have to rely on government assistance like them or at least I haven't sinned big like them. You know, at least mine, my stuff's not like public. At least I'm not as bad as them. We all have people we instinctively turn our noses up to. 
the thing that I was thinking about is like, you know, you remember when you were in grade school or in high school and you got the tests that were passed back? You know, they would, they would hand the papers back and you had the, the, the grade circled in red at the top. What did you instinctively do? You look around to see how you measure up, right? And what you usually do is if you look and your grade was higher than the person next to you, what did you do? <laughs> That's right. I got the better grade. And so we've all smirked like that when the tests get handed back and ours has a better grade on it than our neighbor. Again, here's Kent Hughes. Such prayers begin well enough, thanking God for his saving grace that has changed their lives, but they regard the living out of their lifestyle as due to their own discipline and effort. They've made the grace of God into personal accomplishment. They began the Christian walk as Augustinians, understanding that everything is of God, but later began to live as Pelagians, living as if it were all due to their own virtue. Comparative side glances and lips pursed in disapproval reveal the terrible interior delusion that all is well with one's self-righteous soul. Oh, I read that and it's like, oh. This is where the tax collector's prayer offers the biggest contrast. Look at verse 13. Let's hear what the tax collector has to say. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, here's where Hughes is helpful. Whereas the Pharisee stood erect with eyes open to heaven, the publican could not bring himself to lift up his head. Whereas the Pharisee confidently prayed, the tax collector sorrowed over what he was and what he had done. Like the Pharisee, the tax collector verbalized his prayer, but with difference. It is one thing to publicly announce your virtues. It is quite another to proclaim your sins. So we look at the contrast here in prayers between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we go, so what? And please hear me. This is not me wagging my finger. This is me pleading with you as a, as a Pharisee. I am pleading with you. Okay? This is where the gospel sets us free. It frees us up to be brutally honest about our sin and to quit hiding behind a carefully crafted or guarded exterior. It sets us free just to be honest. It sets us free. Psalm 51 verses 3 and 4, written, after, written by David after Nathan's visit. You remember the story where Nathan comes in and says, David, you are the man. And not in a positive way. You are the one who has messed up. The prophet comes and calls him out. Here's what David wrote. He said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We confess that together as our corporate confession of sin. We adapted it and just changed the pronouns from I to we and us. We said, Against you and you only have we done it. And so as we think about this and we think about just our wrestling with the gospel and how this has to sit into our hearts, how much time do you spend focusing on the sins and shortcomings of others while completely ignoring your own sins and shortcomings? You're so quick to hand out indictments on everyone else, but very rarely do you actually think about the interior of your own heart and all the ways that you've fallen short. You're so quick to go eat others for lunch but never take time to actually sit and think about how are all the ways that I have fallen short? How much time do you spend maintaining a very religious exterior while secretly feeling guilty about what you do in secret? 
Like, I know I shouldn't be doing that. I do it over and over again. I know I shouldn't treat people like that. I know I shouldn't look at that on the internet. I know, fill in the blank. And how much time do you spend maintaining a very religious Christian-y exterior while secretly racked with guilt and shame? Would you like another way to live? I got some good news for you, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the plea. Flee to Christ. Flee to his mercy. Find rest in Christ. Run to Christ. Rest in the gospel. Rest in what he says about you. The grace-shaped life is one lived with a minute-by-minute dependence upon Christ because you truly realize, maybe for the first time, that you have no merit to stand on by yourself. We'll sing songs like, I need thee every hour. But yet we live as though I only need you sometimes when life goes bad. The grace-shaped life is one of humility. Humility before a holy God. That's why we do a confession of sin every week. Lord, these are all the ways that I've fallen short. You're holy and I'm not. It's a life of humility before a holy God. But it's one lived because of Christ with great confidence in the gospel. It's humility and confidence. Those things seem to be kind of contradictory, but they're not. The grace-shaped life is realizing that as the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price by sheer grace and mercy. See, we forget that it took nothing less than the death of God's perfect son on the cross to rescue and redeem us from a well-deserved hell. We forget it like that. Nothing else would do. It took nothing less than the death of Jesus on the cross, his atoning work. That was the only thing that could purchase us back. That was it. We had nothing that we brought. The grace-shaped life is growing in your ability to see yourself as a sinner before a holy God and one who is in desperate need of grace. We've said before, the church and the mob are the only two places you have to admit you're bad to get in, right? It's question one to join the church. Do you see yourself to be a sinner in desperate need of God's grace? Do you admit that about yourself, really? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? Well, I'm kind of a sinner. I might be messed up a little bit, but I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a delusion. Stop. I am pleading with you. God is holy, holy, holy. And we are what? Not, not, not. That is our daily prayer. We say, Lord, remind me of who you are and remind me of who I am. Lord, work this into my bones You see, this tax collector's prayer is really short, but it's really profound, isn't it? What does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's the thing. The gospel is never good news for for people who think that they can do it on their own. But it's always good news for those who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can't. The gospel's never good news for people who think that they can do it on their own. And I know some of y'all are thinking, you're sitting there going, well, I can do it on my own. I'm doing a pretty good job. No, you're not. You're lying to yourself. Do you want to bring that righteous? Do you want to bring that record before a holy God and say, this is what I have? How's that going to work out? It's not. It's not. Flee from your Pharisee self-righteousness. I know what it's like. I get it. It's eating you alive. You know that you can't stand before a holy God with that. I am pleading with you to run to Christ and just be honest about yourself. 
Jesus didn't come to make good people better like he was some self-help life coach. Jesus came to make dead people live. That's the gospel. Jesus did not come to make good people better because you're not a good person. He came to make spiritually dead people live. And when you get that and it gets in your bones, you say, thank you, Jesus. And the question you ask is, why me? Why me, oh Lord? Why would you ever show your grace and kindness to me? And I know some of y'all are wiggling in your seats and you don't like this. I'm okay with it. I'm not fussing at you. I'm saying, please, please believe the gospel. Please run to Christ. I say it every week. The gospel frees us to admit that it's okay that we're not okay. The gospel frees us to admit that we're the bad guy in the story. The gospel frees us to admit our own faults and failures. It frees us to live honestly in front of others instead of hiding. It frees us to not have to pretend like we're perfect all the time. Frees us to cry out honestly to God and to rest in His love. Some of y'all maybe have never felt that before. Maybe you're always so worried that if you if you were to actually maybe pop the garage door a little bit, you're afraid that a roach is going to run out. And the gospel frees us to admit to just say, "Here's who I am," and I come to you, O Lord. And the gospel frees us to come before the Lord and to be honest before Him and to rest in His love. Why? Second point, very quickly. The gospel sets us free by reminding of us, of, of us all of our biggest hope. So it reminds us of our biggest problem, which is sin before a holy God. And we can't fix it ourselves. That's a big problem. But it reminds us and sets us free by reminding us of our biggest hope. Did you notice the declaration that Jesus gave in verse 14 of the parable? God heard the prayers of both men and he saw their hearts. The heart of the Pharisee was self-sufficient and so he saw himself as justified, being right with God because of his own religious performance, his own obedience, his own spiritual pedigree. And the heart of the tax collector was broken and contrite because he admitted his sin and he threw himself fully upon the mercy of God as his only hope. And what did Jesus say? I tell you this man, the tax collector, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because he understood something about himself. Is this the hope of your heart today? Can you honestly say and sing with all vigor, all I have is Christ? That's all I got. Is that the hope of your heart? Jesus said that the tax collector went home justified. That means declared right in that holy God's eyes. He went home justified. It's amazing when you think about it. It's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not a treadmill, it's rest. It's rest in Christ. It's not a treadmill or a checklist. Here's a hundred more things to do. Now go prove yourself. That's not the gospel. The gospel is come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. That's the gospel. What additional righteousness do you bring to the salvation equation that could ever add to what Christ has already done? Do you trust Him by faith alone, or are you still clinging to your own personal achievements? It's one or the other. Either you say, I got nothing, or you say, I still got something. We say, all I have is Christ. That's all I have. Is this your hope today? If you are here and you do not trust Christ, we love you. We're glad that you're here. My appeal to you as a minister in the gospel, ministering to His name, is flee your self-salvation project and run to Christ. If you are here and you're living like a Pharisee like I did before, trust me, it's not going to work out and it's only going to wear you out. And the call is the same. 
Run from your self-salvation project and trust in Christ. If you are here and you see your need and your brokenness, and you know, you know that there's a stink in the room and it's coming from you, the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus loves you. Rest in his grace. Rest in his mercy. Find hope in the gospel. Rest in him. There's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's always hope. Don't believe me? Almost done. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, not by our works, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith in this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, the grace-shaped life is one lived under the banner of peace with God. The grace-shaped life is one, is one lived knowing that this peace was purchased at great cost by God himself. The grace-shaped life is one that knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that because what Christ has done, the banner that is over you is it is finished. That your sin debt has been put away. And that now you have peace with God. Not warfare, not strife, peace that has been purchased by Christ. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. The grace-shaped life is one that does not need to exalt itself because it has humility before a holy God, but it also has unwavering hope in the mercy and love of Jesus. 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The grace-shaped life is one that can daily say, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. You can admit those two things. When you think about your own life, who do you find yourself resembling more? The Pharisee, like me, or the tax collector? Coming before the Lord and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Just have mercy on me. I've said before, one of the most honest prayers you can pray is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. That's it. Back in 1864, Horatius Bonner wrote an incredible poem that's become the great hymn name, Not What My Hands Have Done, and I commend it to you highly. Verse 1 says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Verse 2, thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. The last verse says this, I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his, and I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light, my Lord has saved my life. And freely pardon gives. Don't miss this. I loved because he first loved me. And I live because he lives. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel. In all of its beautiful simplicity. I add nothing to it. I offer it to you. The simple gospel. Which is this. Stop looking at yourself and trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Find your hope in Christ and Christ alone. That's it. We trust him by faith, by grace, and we say, Lord, I need you, not what my hands have done.
Lord, you and you alone. That's it. Is that your hope? I don't know. If you want to talk more about it, I'll be right up front. Please come, or let's go have some coffee and talk about it, okay? But all I can do is give you the gospel. That's it. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, these simple truths placed before us. Lord, and as we examine our lives, help us to see all the ways that we have fallen short of your glory. Help us to see all the ways, O oh Lord, that we have sinned against you. And Lord, may that not drive us to despair. May it drive us to Christ. May it, may it drive us to the hope in the gospel. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we've been self-righteous Pharisees, thinking that we've got it all worked out and everybody else needs to come up to the high holy mountain that we have claimed all by ourselves. Lord, please forgive us. Help us to repent. Lord, help us to come to you with honest petition and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as we pray that from the depths of our hearts, may we find the love of Christ there waiting to rush in. We are thankful for your undeserved mercy. We are thankful for your undeserved love. We are thankful for your grace that abounds. And Lord, we are grateful for the cross that purchased our redemption at great cost to you, O Father. And it pleased the Son to be obedient to you, even to the point of death, so that we could know him. We could know you and be justified in your sight. Lord, give us humility. Help us to be a humble church. Help us to be a humble church, O oh Lord, that looks to you in all things, and we're able to defer and to say, not me, not me, O oh Lord, but Christ. It's all of Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. May that be true for us as well. We pray these things humbly in the precious name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.